Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi there. My name is Zach Twelve. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And you're about to listen to the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails. This is the Versailles Anniversary Project, and this is episode 60. We're 60 episodes deep, and we introduce you today to a very important moment in our story. It's a shorter episode than normal, but because it's one of our many episodes that we've had several days in a row... I don't think you'll mind all that much. Because it's a shorter episode, we have a shorter introduction little bit here for you. Basically, in 10 seconds, no, not 10 seconds, 20 seconds, well, maybe that's too ambitious. Perhaps 30 seconds, I'm going to tell you exactly how you can support this podcast in the best way possible. How can you do that? Well, there is BFIT. B is for blog, E is for email, F is for Facebook, I is for iTunes, and T is for tell somebody. You do all those things, you'll be well on your way. Also, remember, we have a website 
wdfpodcast.com. We have Twitter, at wdfpodcast. And we have Patreon, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. If you remember BFIT and those three little things, you'll be doing your bit to help this podcast grow and to help make history thrive. And that's it, guys. Enjoy this episode. Listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 60. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 60. In the last episode, we saw how the League of Nations was crafted and established, being presented in its final form to the Plenary Conference of Nations in Paris on the 28th of April 1919. This was an auspicious day indeed, and while Harold Nicholson, took the time to record that it poured with rain, there was no shortage of optimism that this represented a brave new step in the right direction for international relations. The question was, though, could this brave new step receive the ratification of Woodrow Wilson's allies and rivals alike in Congress? And a further question asked whether the League could withstand the initial shocks which the post-war world threatened to inflict upon it. Such tests would be encountered in time, but the very next day, an incredibly significant step towards this final peace treaty was reached when the German delegation finally arrived in Paris. The journey had been long and waited with anticipation over the treatment they could expect from the Allies. Rumours abounded over how severe or reasonable the Allies would be, but the Germans, either way, represented the first face of the former foe to be presented with the portions of the treaty that had been worked out for the past four months. The question mark of whether the Germans would accept these terms was one thing. The additional question mark of whether the Allies would have the final treaty crafted in time for the Germans to view and review it was quite another. In sum, both questions boiled down to a significant point, that this was a watershed moment in the history of peacemaking. If this is the case, then why did it all feel so haphazard, so uninspired and so dissatisfying? It was a good question, amidst a sea of questions in the final few days of April 1919. After staying on the outside for so long, these few Germans were about to step into the world which the Allies had occupied for more than 100 days. The shock which followed was something to behold, and I will now take you to that scene as a German delegation makes its way, gradually, to the room of their conquerors. Of all the decisions made during the Paris Peace Conference, pinning down the moment when it was decided to actually invite the Germans to take part in the proceedings provided one of the more surprisingly difficult tasks on my to-do list. In many narratives, the Germans simply go from not being there to arriving on the 29th of April as though part of some automatic timetable which had been agreed months before. In fact, as we know, the Germans had no official representation at Paris throughout January to April, though this was not from want of trying. 
The Germans were eager indeed to partake in some kind of conference, which they hoped would give them the opportunity to make their case. This eagerness was expressed before 1919, during the armistice period. On five separate occasions, the German government attempted to contact the Allies in December 1918 to inquire about the beginning of the preliminary peace conference. The expectation was, of course, that Germany would be taking part, when in reality, Germany wasn't invited, and the so-called preliminary conference, which did materialise, became the final conference, which produced the final treaty. Those whose duty it was to draw up the peace, wrote Marshal Foch after the event, set to work with all imaginable slowness. The delay was to cost France dear. The questions of most import to us, reparations and security, became increasingly difficult to settle favourably. Yet Foch was instrumental in ensuring that the armistice period was extended indefinitely from the end of February 1919 which virtually guaranteed that the Germans would not be invited to Paris for some time. The grizzled French marshal made things difficult for Clemenceau, but he was mostly powerless to block the collective Allied decision to invite the Germans to Paris, and this decision was taken on the 13th of April. April itself had been a month of trying times for all involved, so it may come as a surprise to see Wilson pushing for an invite for the Germans by the middle of April on the basis that the treaty was nearly finished. Was the treaty nearly finished? Not exactly, not really, and its pieces were only coming together with considerable effort. Consider, for example, the sheer range of committees which were housed in Paris. While we only hear from the Greek and Czechoslovak committees, largely because these were the ones that Nicholson sat on, it should go without saying that other delegates found the experience as trying, if not more so, than our man on the inside. Of course, it should also go without saying that I haven't bombarded you with the details of all these committees because I didn't want to turn you off even more than you may already be turned off by all of these details. Some of the delegates that did sit on these different committees were able to benefit from more of an insider's perspective and gauge which way other aspects of the treaty were shaping up. On the evening of the 7th of April, the negotiations on Germany's western border had bogged down, but a compromise in the reparations question seemed to be taking shape. Wilson had recently fallen ill, he had been lampooned in the French press, and he had issued a command for his boat to be prepared to return to America with him on board. Wilson must have made this threat primarily because of the talks on the territorial problems in the West. On the other hand, he felt that the peace treaty was essentially complete, once he and his colleagues had reached a compromise on the Tsar, and he was therefore ready to invite German delegates to the peace conference by the 25th of April, even though final agreement on other points, for example the occupation of the Rhineland, had not been reached at that time. As it happened, this planned conference would not gather until the 28th of April, whereupon it would approve the covenant of the League of Nations. The Germans would not arrive until the 29th of April, in any case, by which point they would have to wait more than a week for the actual final treaty to be completed. The last-minute delays and additions from the various committees were to be expected when there were so many moving parts. I can't be the only one to feel like the call to welcome the Germans to Paris was premature, but it was done in the context of wanting to move the whole process along. 
By issuing this invite, the Allies will be at least compelled to move as quickly as possible, and perhaps Wilson believed that it would jolly the process along and help smooth over outstanding cracks. He couldn't have known, even if he suspected, that Italy and Japan in their turn would present challenges, or that by the end of April, Vittorio Orlando would be back in Rome. April, if you haven't realised it yet, was a strange month. It contained more expressions of division than any other period of the conference, and yet we are left with the image of Wilson determining that the time was right to invite the Germans to take part in what had been created. Did Wilson genuinely believe that what had been created by mid-April 1919 was adequate? It certainly seems as though Wilson's minions would have benefited from another week or two to craft the treaty, as we'll see in an On This Day episode on the 7th of May, precisely how chaotic the situation was in the hours leading up to the presentation of the Treaty of the Germans, to the extent that no member of the Big Three, and very few of the other delegates besides, had actually read the 440 articles of the Treaty of Versailles in its entirety. And yet, Wilson, with the blessing of Georges Clemenceau and Lloyd George, did issue the invite, and the Allies prepared from that point on to host the Germans in Paris. A special hotel would be prepared for their stay, however long that would be, and whatever complications it might present. After talking around the issue for so long, how would the Allies respond when the Germans actually arrived in the French capital? What kind of reception would they be given? Would they be afforded a gentlemanly courtesy? Or would they receive nothing but condemnation and curses in the street? Would they be allowed outside the confines of whatever hotel they did stay at? Would their expectations about the peace conference be fulfilled? And would they, as Wilson's 14 points suggested, play a role in negotiating its final tenets? Or would they, as the Allies intended now, be dictated to, with the terms of the final peace treaty presented as a fait accompli rather than as something which could be negotiated upon or significantly altered? All of these questions remained to be answered, and it was hard indeed to imagine Germans arriving in Paris after so many months of planning without them. One individual who would be confronted with the full extent of these questions was Germany's foreign minister, who in mid-April 1919 understood that it would be his mission to lead the German delegation to Paris to find out for himself what the situation was and what Germany could expect to get from this long peace process. Would it be good news or would it be the worst, most terrible news he had ever received in his career as a statesman? Ulrich von Brockdorf Ranzau was on the case. And for better or for worse, his face, his voice, his presence and his words would serve as the first true response from the vanquished side which the Allies would receive in their peacemaking efforts. Ulrich von Brockdorf Ranzau was a greasy man with slicked back hair and a Charlie Chaplin moustache. He looked like the perfect caricature of an imperial German statesman. It was as though the Allies had imagined the features of one of the Kaiser's innermost courtly gentlemen, and Brockdorf Ranzau had popped out. From mid-January until his resignation of the Treaty of Versailles terms, he served as Weimar Germany's foreign minister. Before and during the war, he had been a capable, if snooty, pair of hands in Germany's foreign office. Brockdorf Ranzau came from one of Germany's old landed families, and it showed in how he carried himself. The Ransaus had served Denmark, Prussia, Bavaria, and even France in past centuries. A Ransau was rumoured to have fathered Louis XIV, and when he had been asked about this rumour, 
Brockdorf Ransau was heard to comment, Oh yes, in my family, the Bourbons have been considered bastard Ransaus for the past 300 years. A twin brother of Brockdorf Ransau had managed the Kaiser's estates, and Brockdorf Ransau had been born on the family's estate in Schleswig-Holstein in 1869, just before Prussia became the German Empire. While he could be insufferable, cruel, and drink too much brandy at times, there was no denying that Brockdorf Ransau worked with considerable dexterity and skill, and he had to if he was going to navigate the chaotic post-war order of Germany. With Spartacists on the loose, the Freikorps tearing up the Baltic, and Bavaria sinking under the waves of revolution throughout April, Germany required a strong hand in foreign policy if it was to persevere through such uncertain times. Brockdorf Ransau provided these hands, and interestingly, even though he did not sign on the dotted line on the 28th of June, it is his image that is often associated with the treaty, because he led the deputation of Germans to Paris in the final week of April 1919. It was up to this deputation to receive the Allied terms and report back to their government. They would not be required to sign all of a sudden, and some among the deputation expected that some opportunities for bargaining would be provided. These expectations were quickly dashed, though, when the German delegates were shunted to a hotel in Versailles called the Hotel de Reservoir. It was a good, if unremarkable, hotel, but anyone with a brainstem in the German delegation understood the real reason why they were lodging in this hotel of all places. It had been here, during the throes of the Franco-Prussian War, that the French had come to negotiate with Bismarck. It was here in 1871 that the French government was left utterly humiliated. Once again, just as Clemenceau had arranged by beginning the Paris Peace Conference on the date that the German Empire had been proclaimed, here was a use of that symbolism which spoke to the very heart of Franco-German hostility. Brockdorf Ransau took it on the chin and accepted it as a necessary part of the peacemaking process. He had never been, in spite of his airs and graces, all that much of an imperialist radical. He had urged a compromise peace during the war, and he had urged cooperation with the socialists after it. Now, on the expectation that France would play hardball, Brockdorf Francais intended to stick like glue to the Americans, and specifically the 14 points which Woodrow Wilson had communicated in January 1918. It had been on the basis of the fundamental principles within these points, after all, that Germany had made its armistice agreement. Furthermore, she had also established a legitimately democratic republic in place of the old Kaiserreich. Whether the Allies recognised it as legitimate or not was another story, though. Though the Allies had made it plain that there would be no room for negotiation, Brockdorf Ransau's delegation contained many variables in opinion where the Allied terms were concerned. The story was the same among the citizenry of the new German Republic, based at Weimar. The people, recorded an American diplomat based in Berlin, had been led to believe that Germany had been unluckily beaten after a fine and clean fight, owing to the ruinous effects of the blockade on home morale, and perhaps some too far-reaching plans of her leaders, but that happily President Wilson could be appealed to and would arrange a compromise peace satisfactory to Germany. The expectations were that Germany may have to pay a straightforward indemnity as a penalty, but that she wouldn't be required to cover the costs of the war through some reparations policy, 
or that she would lose her colonies and military corps. Expectations, it must be said, were wholly at odds with the reality. Even if some better informed Germans had gotten a whiff of the Allied intransigence, they'd also learned of Allied rivalries. Franco-American quarrels over the Rhine, Anglo-American disputes over reparations, the Italian exit over Fiume, the Japanese threats over the Shantung Peninsula. All of these spats were potential opportunities for the Germans, and even while much of the detail of these disagreements were kept secret, it was impossible to hide from Germany the fact that the Allies were not a happy family. It is perhaps little surprise that one German scholar later referred to these months as the dreamland of the armistice period. Cold hard facts about the difficulties which faced German negotiators were ignored or discredited where possible, while rumours continued to run rampant. At the same time, though, we should not imagine that the Germans twiddled their thumbs until the Allies saw fit to invite them to Paris. From the moment of the armistice, Germany set up a peace agency which harnessed the research and investigations of hundreds of individuals. Volume after volume of detailed maps, reasoned arguments and counter-arguments accompanied the German delegates in crates on their train journey. Valuable and well-rounded, though the contents of these crates were on paper, literally, in practice, they were never used. The negotiations which the Germans did expect to have, and the opportunities to make use of these extensive studies, never materialised. In many cases, the crates were not even opened, and remained virtually untouched for decades. While the Germans were disappointed to learn that they would not be negotiating when they arrived on the 29th of April, they were frustrated for another reason. The proposed moment for receiving the final peace terms was not at all yet at hand. This Treaty of Versailles was not yet ready, and would not be ready for over a week. Thus, from the moment they arrived in their hotel on the 29th of April, until the opportunity came to receive the treaty on the afternoon of the 7th of May, the Germans were holed up in their Hotel de Reservoir. On the expectation that the French were listening into their conversations, Kind of amusingly, the Germans conducted all conversations under the cover of loud music blaring over gramophones which had been brought from Berlin. As they occupied this hotel space, the Germans began to settle into life in Versailles. They were taken on car tours of the city, and occasionally crowds of French onlookers gathered to catch a glimpse of their foes best and brightest. Despite a few jeers and some thrown stones, by and large the German delegates were left alone. Some delegates were free to walk in the parks, to double down on their legal French revision, or to soak in the touches of spring in Paris. But by the 7th of May, the fourth anniversary of the sinking of the Lusitania, as it happened, the terms were presented to the German delegation, and a response was thus required. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it next week, but I don't think it gives anything away to state that Brockdorf Ransau was at his worst, and presented the most confrontational of spectacles in his rebuke of the Allied terms. Central to the furor which would follow the receipt of the Treaty of Versailles terms, and which toppled the government of Chancellor Philip Scheidemann back in Weimar, was the critical disconnect between the Germans and the Allies over what to expect. The expectation that Germany would be treated according to the terms of the 14 points and that the final arrangement would be negotiated, however tough this negotiation process proved, was one which was based on solid ground. The American president had said so, so it must be true. 
Yet, if Wilson had ever genuinely expected to treat Germany in this way, then by the first week of May, there was absolutely no question of such a policy going forward. The stark nature of the terms and the suddenness in the way that the reality struck the German people meant that only through repeated threats to resume the war would the Treaty of Versailles actually be signed. But one can only imagine what might have been had the two parties been in regular contact and had the Germans been informed from the beginning what they would be getting. The problem with that approach, of course, was that the Allies didn't want to compel the Germans to continue the war, and the Allies themselves did not know in November 1918, January 1919, or even the first few days of May 1919, what they actually wanted from Germany or the Central Powers in a final peace. This latter fact is testified to clearly by the incredible point that, as we said, not one of the big three had ever read the full Treaty of Versailles document all the way through by the time he sat down to hear Germany's condemnation of it hours after it had been finished. The unfortunate and completely overworked printers and technicians who were tasked with constructing and binding the conclusions of more than 50 committees and more than 2,000 statesmen found to the surprise of no one that the treaty contradicted itself on many points, that it had excluded many other issues of import and, to top it all off, it contained a morass of errors in spelling, punctuation and terminology. The Germans were thus the victim of their opportunistic expectations, but they were also victims of the way the Allies had done business throughout the Paris Peace Conference. Rather than wait another week to read and dissect the treaty in its final form, many of those present during the plenary conference of the 7th of May would have been hearing its contents aloud for the first time. The day before, on the 6th of May, was another plenary conference, but this was really just to hear the abstract version of that treaty. In other words, all of the Allied powers, pretty much everyone that was not a central power delegate, was able to go to this plenary conference and hear the shortened, summarised version of what the Treaty of Versailles would look like, but even at this stage it was not entirely clear where all the pieces would fit. It was a very rocky start for a treaty which would become associated with the ultimate betrayal. It would encapsulate the doomed nature of the Weimar Republic generally, and of the injustice of the Paris Peace Conference towards the Germans specifically. This, so the narrative went, was how angry Germans justified their later misbehaviour and rebellion against democracy and all sense of decency. Whether such justification is apt or not, we are still not in a position to say. But one thing is certain, a watershed moment had been reached by the final few days of April 1919. This moment soon gave way to anxiety and despair on all sides. Any actors who may have hoped for a speedy resolution to the Paris Peace Conference would have had their hopes dashed. By dictating their victor's peace, the Allies shattered the hopes and dreams of an already shattered Germany, and they also, arguably, shattered any chance that Germany might look in the mirror and save itself after the Great War. The only mirror that mattered, the only mirrors that mattered, were those in the Hall of Mirrors at the Palace of Versailles, where the ultimate humiliation was visited upon the German people, so the story went. This infamous saga was still far from finished, but with the arrival of Brockdorf Ransau's German delegation in the Hotel de Reservoir on this day 100 years ago, its first chapter had definitively been written. Thank you.
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.